Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR Live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. Hi, welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, uh, the editor of the Insider English, as well as director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. And I know it's been a while since our last episode, apologies, but the good news is there's a lot of fun stuff coming down the pike at Insider English, which you should, should all pay attention to because it's Russia related, specifically Russian intelligence related. And that's the reason for this uh, episode. I'm joined by two uh, very esteemed guests. Uh, the first is uh, Tomas Ilvis, the former president of Estonia. Uh, and the other is Dan Hoffman, former CIA officer, who may or may not at one point have been chief of station in Tallinn, but uh, certainly has ample experience with Estonia and Estonia counter counterintelligence, speaks the language fluently, which is rare for an American. And the reason I wanted both of them on the program is, uh, for those of you who are unaware, in the past week, there's been a bit of a hoopla, uh, and it's a very characteristically Twitter-born hoopla, about a case uh, in Estonia of a Russian academic, uh, Vyacheslav Morozov, who was uh, attached to the University of Tartu and was arrested, I believe, two weeks ago by Kapo, Estonia's uh, internal security service or their version of the FBI. And this has caused uh, quite a furor among academic circles and Russia watching circles that uh, there's no way that this guy, an academic, a scholar of high renown, could have in any way have been working for the Russian intelligence services. Uh, it must be some kind of witch hunt or even worse, uh, you know, kind of an Estonian chauvinistic campaign against Russians living in the country. Uh, Russophobia, in, Russophobia. Russophobia uh, in light of, of the invasion of Ukraine or just, I guess, a general predisposition that Estonians might have about Russians. But the reason I'm bringing... Um, Ilvis and Hoffman on the show is both uh, can speak to the way things work in Estonia. And I think uh, Dan in particular can speak to how Russian espionage functions, particularly when targets for recruitment or assets are themselves ethnic Russians living in the diaspora. And so, gentlemen, welcome to you both. Um, you've both been following this case as have I. Uh, Tomas, you've been tweeting about it and pushing back on some of the more um, histrionic uh, arguments against uh, Capo and 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 your country. Let's start with just sort of how Estonia functions as a social democracy and how its law enforcement agencies ply their trade. And and more to the point, don't ply their trade. I mean, you know, I, I've done many stories on Capo. I've interviewed Russian agents caught by Capo in Capo headquarters. This is one of the most professional counterintelligence services on the planet, certainly held in very high regard in Europe and in the United States. And the idea that they would just round somebody up because they don't like the cut of his jib or that, you know, he's got a Russian surname seems to me quite ludicrous, if I'm not putting it a little too strongly. What's your your take on all of this? The first thing I'd say is that, I mean, given this uh, kind of the, this um I would say orientalist narrative, but oh, those Estonians—they're like you know—they were. They, we saw it in Medusa today. Oh well, they haven't gone from the Soviet Union. I mean, Estonia rates as one of the highest countries for rule of law anywhere. I mean, out of all of the countries in the world, it's like number nine. Yeah. You know, so uh, ahead of both the U.S. and UK on rule of law. I mean, basically the Nordic countries are ahead of us. New Zealand is ahead of us. 
I mean, it's uh, we don't do those kind of things, but it's typical. I say, you know, sort of that's one of the first things that comes out. Oh well, they're you know they have they used to be in the Soviet Union. Obviously, this is a, they're going after a Russian, which is very obnoxious. But on the other hand, I would say on Capo, precisely because of those kinds of. Uh, uh, the possibility of those kinds of, uh, of statements is meticulous. They do not arrest anyone unless they have a case. Uh, also, because we have an extremely liberal court system, which yeah. uh, the police in sort of in non-espionage uh, cases, if this police, especially the criminal police, for example, make a mistake, the case gets thrown out. Right. So, uh, so Kappa does not does not uh, even proceed without being sure they can get a conviction. Right. And Dan, I mean, you you worked in Tallinn, you know, you, I'm sure you had liaison with Capo. Uh, you and I have talked offline about Alexander Taltz, who's the head of CI there. And I mean, quite a legendary figure, both within and without a, in Estonia, right? I mean, he kind of got his start as a cop, cleaning up organized crime in the 90s and, you know, is now, I mean, I think he's got a near 100%, if not 100% conviction rate for all the Russian assets he's he's hoovered up, um, especially in the last 15 years or so. And this cuts across all the services, FSB, SVR, and my favorite, the GRU, two of, 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 of whose agents I had the privilege of being able to interview and profile uh, once they were caught and confessed. Uh, and one of whom actually, and <laughs> speaks to, I think, the um, the, 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 the professionalism of Capo, uh, was captured, um, tried, convicted, imprisoned, traded back to Russia in a swap. And then, uh, a year or two ago, defects from St. Petersburg to Estonia with the help of Alexander Taltz, the very spy master who unmasked him and put him in prison. So it's a very rare thing for a, a Russian to want to run back into the arms of his jailer. And yet in, in the case of Estonia, we have at least one example of this. The first to my knowledge of, of any such case in the Cold War. Tell us a little bit about how, from your perspective, how it works there. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there was a time in which, you know, Estonia was deeply penetrated by Russian agents. Right. I mean, you know, the Hermann Sim case. Uh, at right. the very start of your accession to NATO. And it's been a kind of trial by fire, uh, learning how to root these guys out. I mean, what, what was your experience when you were there? So I could tell you that I've known Alexander Totz for 25 years. And he made his mark in Eastern Estonia mm -hmm. uh, before he transferred to Capo headquarters. And he is a native Estonian speaker, of course, but also a native Russian speaker. And he bridges cross-cultural differences. If you're trying to recruit sources, then you really need to immerse yourself in Russian language and culture and history and all of those things. And he's exceptionally crafty in that way. And you're right. Uh, look, Estonia has been very much in Russia's crosshairs. You alluded to the Hermann Sim case I knew Herman Sim. I had no idea that this guy was spying first for the KGB and then for the SVR, was run by an SVR illegal. Uh, the FSB ran very high-profile cases uh, like um, Alexei Dresen, another capo, senior capo officer, Vladimir Veitman, another capo officer. It's gone back and forth. And the Estonians have taken their shots at the Russians as well. And you wonder why is this that, that Russia so focuses so much on Estonia? Well, I'll tell you why. Because what scares the KGB operative in the Kremlin so much, Vladimir Putin, is democracy. Yeah. And Estonia makes it work. If you live in if you live in Ivangorod and you could practically see Narva, you're wishing that the border had been drawn just a little bit farther to the east because the Estonians enjoy liberty and freedom and democracy, freedom of opportunity, a, a, a robust economy, all the things that Russia doesn't have. Russia's got corruption. Estonia has the rule of law. And so Vladimir Putin knows that he has to take his shots at Estonia. And so forged through those challenges, particularly over the last you know 25 years or so, Kapo has become an elite counterintelligence service uh, Alexander Totes embodies that. He's not the only one. They've got exceptional people at all levels. Uh, and when they make a case against someone, it's usually, it is not usually, it's always based on sources and methods. That's how we caught Herman Sim. 
Yeah. I can't go into the details, but that's a case of sources and methods where we learned of, of his nefarious spying. It takes a spy to catch one. So with this case of Vyacheslav uh, Morozov, uh, the professor of international political theory at the University of Tartu, I have no doubt that Estonia had sensitive intelligence collection on whatever nefarious stuff he was doing. Remember that he was a, a professor in St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. He's a dual citizen. You don't get to come to Estonia and teach without the FSB knocking on your door and saying, hey, whatever we ask you to do, you better do it or else you're going to be in a bad place. So that we don't know the details. We just know that that Capo says he was, quote, orchestrating anti-democratic action. We don't know the details yet, but I have no doubt that we will hear in good time about what all of that entails. And I mean, one thing that, that seems to get confused when when people talk about espionage or think that they're talking about espionage is not every spy volunteers him or herself out of ideological motive or, you know, for venal reasons such as money. Some people get compromised. Some people have, uh, you know, a, a proverbial gun to their head or a literal gun to their head, particularly if they're Russian and they travel back to Russia and they have family members or, or loved ones still in Russia, they are vulnerable. Um, you know, I, I did a, a whole profile of uh, Denis Metsavas, who was an ethnic Russian who grew up in Tallinn, uh, but very patriotically pro-Estonian, joined the Estonian army, um, kind of ironically and tragically was turned into a poster child post-Crimea 2014 for the success of ethnic Russian integration in Estonia, but because he kept going back to Smolensk to visit his aunt and uncles and cousins, was honey trapped 10 years prior and was run by the GRU. And he hated it and he hated himself. And he, you know, he was very, it was kind of a heartbreaking story. Some of these guys are, you know, themselves victims before they become agents, right? I mean, they're, they are psychologically disassembled by the Russian services who are well-trained to do it. So we don't know, I mean, if, if Morozov you know, sort of offered himself up or, you know, was in some way being blackmailed by traveling to Russia. And and as you point out, given the proximity to NATO, given the access he would have had at, at a university in Tartu, um, he's he's a he seemed to me to be a, a very likely target for recruitment. Um, sure. I think the, the questions you're raising are important. Uh, what was his motive? Well, that there's lots of motives, and and we'll wait to hear what those might have been. Sometimes uh, it's about um, it's it, if somebody say that 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 someone was motivated by money, that's just being intellectually lazy. Uh, that money, the need for money, is just an outward manifestation of someone's inner vulnerability. What they need to do with the money is the is the vulnerability. Maybe they have a sick child that they need to get medical care for, uh, or it could be ideological affinity. It could be that they did something they regret. The Russians are very um, their their normal practice is to blackmail people. Uh, the Russians have a saying that uh, Thomas knows quite well: "Svayaru bashka blisha katelu." Your own shirt is closest to your skin, and and so they use the the that blackmail to their advantage. That's how they that's how they uh, run their spy operations. In the Western world, we're more focused on the carrot, not the stick. We're focused on solving people's problems. Um, rather than trying to blackmail somebody. And you saw with the redefection case, you noted if you blackmail somebody, you don't really have a lot of control in the relationship. And it's not like you've got a relationship where the your agent, your source, wants to be a part of that relationship. He might be looking for a way out. Yeah. Uh, so, but the, the range of things I want to emphasize that Morozov allegedly could have been involved in, it's certainly spotting people of interest and and collecting information on them. It might also be uh, disinformation and propaganda spreading falsehoods that serve Russia's national interest. There was enough concern at the university. I have no doubt that that the head of the uh, of their uh, political studies department, Kristina Tönnison, whom I'm sure Thomas knows because Estonia is a small place. I know her. <laughs> For 25 well, years ago, I, I know her. I, I teach in the same institute. You know her. Floor, no, on the same floor, two doors oh. down from, okay. from Morozov. I mean, we're in the same oh. wing. And wow. On the same floor. So maybe he was I'm collecting from you. <laughs> That's what I, was, I was asked by a newspaper. Do you think he was spying on you? I said, well, I'm, I'm more recent than he is. So <laughs> I have no idea. But uh, no, but I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, 
you know, I'm, what I, I'm more sort of concerned about is this strange reaction among colleagues of his era, sort of internationally, like, oh my God, he's such a sweet guy. How can he possibly be a spy? I mean, it, I mean, I had to like remind people that you know, what is it now? Ninety years ago, eighty years ago, uh, Anthony Blunt, who became the greatest art historian of the United Kingdom in the in the second half of the 20th century was a member of the Cambridge Five. He was number four. Mm. So along with Kim Philby and his buddies, they were the big spies. I mean, Kim Philby, who basically penetrated British intelligence, passed on all kinds of information. He was at Cambridge, and so was Blunt. And Blunt, uh, I mean, basically, I guess he reached a deal that he would not be unmasked if he if he said everything. So, um, well, I mean, you know, and Philby was a journalist, and which provided the perfect cover as well for his espionage. He was sent to fratricidal Spain, and you know, posed as a Francoist for the Times of London and got access to Franco and was even at one point being considered to to be the guy to assassinate Franco, which the NKVD called off. So this idea that academics would never, I mean, I've published KGB training manuals where they the, the, the Soviets would talk about the use of academics for the very reason that they travel a lot, they talk to lots of people, you know, they're usually multilingual, especially if they're doing geopolitical studies. Uh, as Morozov kind of was. I mean, so it, it, in a way, this is there's nothing new under the sun here. I mean, this happens all the time. Three months ago, Canada arrested a, a, a GRU agent who was posing as a Brazilian academic. Mm. Uh, I mean, we see this over and over again. In fact, uh, I, I'd say that the, the n- number of cases of busted academics is actually quite high. And so this this uh, this kind of this bleating that we hear from uh, colleagues about oh my god he's such a nice guy this is all a setup is 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 really quite uh, I mean I'm you know if, if it if, they, if it was if it were biologists who were doing this but these are colleagues in in uh, who study Russia being yeah. shocked that a member of their community is a spy. I mean, it doesn't really make much sense, frankly. I think, and I'm going to put this question to both of you. I I think also part of the kind of mood music of this affair is there's a great deal of sensitivity among those who have um, created careers and reputations for themselves for being Russia watchers and so deeply sort of uh, wedded to studying Russian politics, Russian history, the Russian economy, that all of a sudden now this Paul has been cast on the entire nation and society. I mean, we talk very openly, and I think honestly now, that this really isn't Putin's war. Uh, A good number of of ordinary Russians support it or are indifferent to it. In other words, they don't really give a shit about what's happening to Ukrainians, uh, children being kidnapped, et cetera, et cetera. They just want this whole thing to go away. And there seems to be this this idea that we have to push back against this and and emphasize the, the good Russians. Uh, particularly in the diaspora, right? Which is why I think Estonia comes in for criticism for, you know, doing things like uh, saying, sorry, you know, the border's closed, stay in your own country, don't come here, sort out your own problems. Um, I I talked to the former head of the Foreign Intelligence Service of Estonia, Mick Madden, and I said, you know, in the United States, this is seen as kind of controversial. He said, well, I have a proposal for those in the United States. You take in 100,000 military-aged Russian men into your country, who are listless and unemployed, and you allow them to, you know, run roughshod over your cities and towns, and and then come and tell lecture the Estonians about our our policies and our border security. Um, but I well, think you see, a, you see a big change in say Finland, which yeah, uh, which uh, at the beginning of the war actually they took in some refugees from uh, from Ukraine, and then they took in. Uh, People applying for asylum, men from us, young men from Russia applying for asylum. And then they put them, the women, because they were all women who came from Ukraine, in the same camp or the same refugee center as they put the young men. This was a bad idea. Now, however, Finland has just closed its borders to all Russians because 
they saw the, the the weaponization of asylum seekers that it was these were not asylum seekers they were coming they were either were russians or they were people that moscow following the belarusian example were bringing in from the middle east also lots of strapping young men this is not the kind of thing that europeans really want right no i mean migration can be easily instrumentalized on behalf of a state to destabilize other countries. I mean, Belarus is a classic example. But Dan, I want to ask you a question. So, you know, we sort of joke about Estonia captures spies annually. Like there's always a handful of them. They're written about quite openly in the Capo Annual Review, which is read very uh, intently by CIA, FBI. In the United States, we don't really, I mean, and I'm asking you this specifically because I know you kind of worked on um, the the Skripal exchange uh, with, you know, some of the guys from Operation Ghost Stories and so on. Like, it's kind of a rare thing when the United States announces they have caught Russian spies. And it's it's sort of sensationalized in a way. We don't treat it as a kind of everyday occurrence the way the Estonians do. And, you know, Tomas joked that, well, either for some reason, the Russian services have alighted upon Estonia as their only target in the world, or other countries are kind of remiss or kind of lackadaisical about penetrations in, in their own midst. What do you see, you know, in terms of what the United States and our own counterintelligence community should be doing differently? Should we be more model or modeling ourselves on the Estonian method? And also, I mean, one of the things that they do, which I know is, is somewhat controversial, uh, you know, here is they name and shame, not just captured agents, but also known agents of influence, uh, propagandists, people sent by Russia to destabilize, but who haven't necessarily transgressed any laws of national security. There seems to be like now an urgency to recognize the threat posed by Russia. I mean, you, you have chatter just this week that we're sort of on a glide path to an open military confrontation meeting between NATO and Russia, you know, in the next few years. Is this, do you see that there's kind of a changed uh, level of feeling and thinking about how we go about our own law enforcement and our own spy catching. So first of all, on the the public, um, the public part of this spy yeah. catching business um, for Estonia, super small country, you know, a little over a million people there. We in the United States like to like to say, if you see something, say something. You know, right. Tell state if you if you think that something doesn't look right, tell your state and local law enforcement, especially for for terrorist threats. For Estonia, it's super important for them to do the same thing on the threat from Russia. That's the biggest threat that they face. And so these cases, first of all, Estonia is extraordinarily transparent anyway. That's just built into their DNA. They are as people. They are. If you ask them a question, they're going to tell you the answer, whether they, whether you know, whether you like the answer or not. It doesn't really matter. They're going to tell you what you need to know, even if it isn't exactly what you want to hear. So they're transparent, but there's value there because this is how you inoculate your population against the threat from Russia, which is greater today than it has ever been, for mm -hmm. sure. Uh, the second thing is that in, with the rule of law, all of these cases are going to be public knowledge because they're going yeah. through the legal process. Uh, in the United States and Estonia, we share a, a very robust intelligence exchange. And a lot of these spy cases in Estonia, as you know, uh, there's an element of collaboration with NATO partners, including the United States. When it comes to catching our own spies in the United States, we do it. And there is it is public knowledge. If you look at some of the really very significant cases, Nicholson, Ames, Hansen, um, among others, there's lots of these cases. What I don't think we do well enough in the United States, though, is I don't think that we explain these cases. So the director of national intelligence could step out with the director of national director of national intelligence bully pulpit and explain the threat that we see from China, from Russia. I think director FBI Ray does a really good job of that. But I would like to see actually, yes, model it on Estonia. Give us examples of these people who have spied. What did we learn from these cases? And how as individual citizens at a university, Tartu? one of the leading academic institutions of Europe, not just Estonia. Um, how could a university be at risk? Well, hey, they are. We need to do more of that in the United States so we inoculate our population against the threat from China, not to mention Russia and, and others. But, but really, China floods the zone in our university. So we could take a few pages out of Estonia's handbook here about how to do things better. 
Uh, they do things extraordinarily well. And the reason why is because if they didn't, there would be no Estonia. Right. But I mean, you know, this is a, an interesting case in point. Morozov was not a, a government officer. He didn't have security clearance. He wasn't giving intelligence, classified intelligence to the Russians. He was giving them information, uh, information he was collecting in his capacity as so, a, like, allegedly, it, allegedly. Yeah. I mean, so, so yeah. I mean, right. it, I mean, the U.S., it, we have, there are people who, it, I mean, many of whom hide in plain sight, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. You know, they work with the Russian embassy at the UN. They, 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 you know, spout off on conspiracy theories about Syrian chemical weapons use or the war in Ukraine. They would what you you classify as at best useful idiots, and you know, at worst, somewhere between agents of influence and full blown agents. And yet, you know, they're not being brought into FBI headquarters and and, and indicted for anything. I mean, I think we have. You know, a First Amendment, which tends to inoculate a lot of people for the destabilization aspects of of what an asset or a spy can do. But then we also, I think, have, unfortunately, still this specter and legacy of McCarthyism, right? I mean, even in the, the last few years, we've seen any attempt to try and say the Russians are doing this, the Russians are doing that. The, the, the rebuttal is inevitably this is a, a form of neo-McCarthyism, you know, Russia hysteria, Red Scare 2.0, uh, everybody needs to calm down. You know, we still work with the Russians and they, they're not omnipresent and, and malevolent in the way that we've been told. But, you know, studying this stuff, <laughs> I think a lot of Americans really don't understand the full nature of, you know, or the well, history of this. this phenomenon. Yeah. You know, you, you do have to draw a distinction between the First Amendment. People could say what they wish. They could right. be ill-informed and they can speak as they wish. But if what they're doing is at the behest of a foreign government, specifically uh, a foreign intelligence service, that's where it crosses the line. So if Morozov, you know, information doesn't have to be classified to be in, important or valuable. So if he were spotting students yeah. Who might be it, lots of those Tartu students who study law in particular go work for Capo. And the Russians would be looking at long term, uh, deep seated operations where they're collecting information on students to use down the road. So that could be something that they were doing. But whatever he was doing, if he's doing it at the behest of the Russian FSB, and remember, the FSB is responsible for intelligence in the former Soviet Union, mm-hmm. whereas the SVR, generally speaking, is outside of. You know, operates outside of Estonia, although they have run cases like Herman Sim, the worst penetration of that we know of in NATO's history. That was an SVR illegals operation. Uh, but what what I think will be interesting for for those of us tracking this case is to to it specifically how was Morozov serving uh, Russian intelligence in what capacity? We're going to learn that. There's you know we'll we'll get to that, and I think that will be interesting to see. I, I wonder also on this question that you began with, Michael, why is the Estonia compared to other countries as well? You have to look at the other countries. Uh, in the um, within the European Union, but also including Norway, Switzerland, and the UK, which are not in the EU, there is there is an organization of counterintelligence uh, uh, police in law enforcement uh, called the Club of Bern. And the Club of Bern, uh, they get together and exchange information about, you know, what's going on in each of the countries. The Club of Bern threw out the country of Austria. And they threw Austria out because Austria uh, said, uh, will only deal with counterintelligence when it comes to anti Austrian counterintelligence. At the same time, the country uh, actively promotes itself as headquarters for all kinds of uh, international organizations: the OSCE, the Inter, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency. They do not track who's working in those. Or they don't do anything with those people. If they are spying. The Austrians may know, but they won't tell anybody because that's their policy. Well, I mean, is it a wonder that no one gets caught in Austria? I mean, we know that certain countries have just been very lax on counterintelligence for a number of years. Then there are a number of countries that aren't very good at intelligence. I mean, 
you know, the, the head of uh, German foreign intelligence had to be exfiltrated from Ukraine by the German government because he had been in, because he, he was in Ukraine when the Russians invaded, but the German government scoffed at the U.S. intelligence saying the Russians are going to invade. If you recall, in February of 2022, the, um, the Americans said they're going to invade. Countries like Germany said, they're not going to do that. So Bruno Kahl, the head of the Bundesnachrichtendienst, or the, the equivalent of the CIA, went to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Oops. Yep. So, I mean, there, there are different levels of, uh, I mean, intelligence agencies uh, vary in quality, and countries vary in the attention that they pay to uh, to intelligence operations in their w within their borders. Well, the the BND had a high level Russian mole in Karsten Linke, who was right. arrested only because, I mean, according to German sources, GCHQ alerted the Germans that this guy was working for the Russians. So, I mean, you know, it was it was an an, an internal NATO intelligence exchange. But I mean, look, we, we're now facing a crisis of, you know, pretty great proportion here in, in the form of the largest land war in Europe since World War II. Um, the Ukrainians seem to have a pretty good handle on intelligence and counterintelligence. I mean, you know, if you look at what the SBU and GUR are doing, uh, and they really understand the Russians, I mean, they're doing cross-border raids, they're recruiting Russian nationals as as they put it, partisans who are doing everything from launching drones at fuck even the Kremlin and blowing up um, you know railways in in the Russian Far East and Siberia. Um, could we be learning from them because they're kind of in this um, you know sort of this the the, the 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 cockpit I suppose of Europe at the moment in terms of the biggest international security threat. I mean, I talked to formers Dan uh, such as yourself who say you know we'll be we'll be going to Kiev for years and years to study how the Ukrainians have eaten the Russians lunch for them, um, including things that are happening in occupied Crimea all the time, right? Um, maybe maybe now people are beginning to get religion on this subject, or they're gonna be more vigilant about, you know, the, the um, I guess the enemy without, but also the enemy within, right? Um, the Russians are not gonna stop spying and they're certainly not gonna stop uh, prosecuting active measures against the United States from election interference to, um, cyber attacks that can do everything, cripple international commerce to shut down hospitals in Pennsylvania, as at one GRU bit of malware was able to do several years ago. Well, the thing about oh, sorry, carry on, sir. I would say, I mean, that we are learning from them in 20, 2015. You, uh, when uh, the Kharkiv uh, Oblast was shut down by a Russian cyber attack, nice. Estonia went down there. They were immediately invited to go down there because we have a lot of experience with cyber attacks. But these days, the Ukrainians are so good that they should be teaching the rest of, or they should be teaching NATO about what to do about these things because they're under much worse uh, attack than than anyone else. It's constant. Uh, you know, the Russians are also doing some wonderful things, such as uh, blacking blacking out GPS signals in northern Europe, all out of Kaliningrad. This is in the press. I don't see any statements from any countries that are affected by this. Uh, I mean, so you see that there's a lack of a will or willingness to address excuse me, really bad behavior on the part of the Russians. So you have this uh, combination of unwillingness to talk about what the Russians are doing, a kind of Orientalist, superior and haughty attitude towards what the Ukrainians are doing and what they've learned and their ability to fight, I should say. It's not only spying, they're just, I mean, counterintelligence. They're, they are the only country that has experienced fighting Russians. Yeah. I mean, if we are not learning from them, then, uh, and especially given the way the bellicose rhetoric of Putin, who basically this past week intimated that the Baltic countries are next. I mean, if we're not learning from them, then we're really stupid. Dan, you wanted to say something? No, I, I agree 100% with what you both have said. 
I think that um, when you have a, a war like the one we're seeing, this barbaric war in Ukraine, uh, what powers so much of Ukraine's defense is intelligence. It's cyber intelligence where the Ukrainians have, have stolen Russian secrets through awesome uh, awesome um, cyber capabilities that, that we can learn from. It's mm. about tactical military success from their thanks to their incredible military intelligence uh, and director Budanov. Um, and the lessons learned from these behind enemy lines operations and then operations on the front lines. Uh, these are things that can be shared. If, if you want to know one reason why Ukraine ought to be a member of NATO, uh, they've done more than any country has ever done to defend and to counter and deter Russian aggression in Europe. Hands down, no question about it. And the level of collaboration right now between NATO members and Ukraine is incredibly high, but it should be higher. Estonia and Ukraine have had a long-standing uh, relationship militarily uh, and diplomatically and, of course, with intelligence exchanges. Um, but, you know, the, those who say that, that it's not our war, it, it just harkens back to the 20s and 30s. And, and just read Winston Churchill if you want to know how that turns out. Uh, he warned quite prophetically about, about the risks uh, and, and, and how nation security are interwoven and um, you know, it, that famous quote about the crocodile, if we don't, you know, they're going to come for us next. And, 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 and the return on investment, like 5% of our budget, Department of Defense budget to cut the Russian army down to size, really? I mean, we can't muster that um, with bipartisan support. Like, that's a failure on our part. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's really, when you look at the way the Estonians and the Finns see it, and they're on the border of Russia. Yes, we have a lot to learn from them because they're on the border. Estonia had to deal with this massive cyber attack. And, and you know, uh, it, it, Thomas uh, asked us all, like, what would happen if they turned all the traffic lights green? I think I, I, I've quoted him in speeches about that. Estonia learned from that April 2007 cyber attack, massive DDoS attack. We all learned from that and shared intelligence. And where's the NATO cyber um uh, uh, security, um, uh, what is it? Uh, the cybersecurity, um, center of excellence for center, center of excellence. Yeah. It's in Estonia where it should be right. there. Cause they're the ones on the front lines. Um, and you could thank Do president Thomas Hendrik Ilves, who, who really forged, uh, that relationship at that level between NATO and, and Estonia, with, well, you know, integrated Estonia into NATO even more effectively with, with some of that. So, that's the value, I think, of, of what we can learn from from Ukraine's um, heroic fight against the Russians. Well, it, it, it certainly seems to be the case that countries that have fought wars with the Soviet Union slash Russia or been occupied by the Soviet Union slash Russia seem to understand the urgency of this particular war a lot better than other countries do. I mean, you know, Ukrainians don't worry about the Baltic states or the Nordic countries. Um, they don't worry about the U.K., they do worry a lot about Western Europe, and they certainly worry about the United States right now, given the current political environment. Um, but, you know, one of the ironies, I think, uh, Tomas, that you point out um, when you refer to sort of the Orientalism and the Russian haughtiness, you know, if you listen to the Russian state media and, and what their propagandists say, they don't believe they're actually fighting a war either at the kinetic military level or at the intelligence level with Ukraine. It's always the United States and NATO that's doing all of these things, right? And I know, you know, from interviews I've conducted uh, with, again, former CIA people, the level of cooperation between the CIA and GUR, the Ukrainian Military Intelligence Service, uh, really skyrocketed after 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. And, you know, Mark Polymeropoulos, one of your colleagues, Dan, um, likes to use the phrase that, you know, we helped put in the plumbing in, in Ukraine, but they're very much running their own show. And doing these operations, um, recruiting assets, you know, blowing stuff up, uh, hacking into enormous databases. I think they've got the entire like Russian tax database now that they've managed to exfiltrate from from which is going to be a windfall of intelligence for years and years to come in terms of what they're able to find out about everybody living in Russia. And, you know, 
again, to my mind, like this is not, this is a no brainer, right? I mean, Dan, you point out 5% of our uh, defense budget and we have effectively rendered 60% of Russia's army combat ineffective in the space of two years and change. And yet- There are no US troops in there, I point out. No US troops in there. And yet though, I mean, let's bring it back to Estonia. So I, you know, if you read the Estonian military's um, sort of assessment of the war and its proposals for how to win the war, which are actually quite um, modest and as, as, as they are sensible, they do paint a picture about how the Russians, A, aren't giving up, B, are reconstituting or replenishing their resources, particularly at the level of artillery, um, drones, um, ballistic missiles. And we hear a lot about, you know, Europe having to, you know, they were going to produce a million shells a year to send to Ukraine, and, and they've only produced, what, 200,000, 300,000? And the Ukrainians, according to the Estonian assessment, need 200,000 per month to, to actually prosecute a, a winnable war. Why do you think, and I'll put this to both of you as a kind of final thought, like, why do you think, given the stakes and given that this is happening in Europe, that the Europeans in particular are very, very slow to come around to. I'll give you my take, and then, then yeah. I'm sure we'll give a more intelligent one. But uh, look, the um, the Estonian intelligence, Estonian intelligence estimate, military intelligence estimates two to three years before Russia can reconstitute itself. Yesterday, uh, the German defense minister Pistorius said five to eight years. Now I'm not going to I'm not going to get into that argument, but the fact that even a German says five to eight, given the sort of general uh, desire of Germany not to do anything, uh, shows that there is an increasing awareness. Now the problem has been, and this is this runs through all kinds of political decisions, is that the um, Western Europe is loath to admit that actually we were right. The, those of us on the border of Russia, with the experience that you were talking about, actually knew what was going on. Uh, so far, only uh, basically only the Finnish prime minister, who's no longer prime minister, said, well, we should have listened to the Estonians. Uh, it doesn't be the Estonians. It is basically an attitude towards Eastern Europeans that because they know something, therefore they must be prejudiced. Mm -hmm. that we who don't know, we who don't have the evidence, we know better. And you see this, and I, I guess the whole thing is summed up where right now with the discussion going on about who's going to be the next secretary general of NATO. One candidate is Kaya Kallas, the Estonian prime minister, who's really been at the forefront of raising awareness. The Dutch commissioner in the EU said, we can't let, uh, we can't allow Kaya Kallas uh, to become Secretary General of NATO because she comes from a country that borders on Russia. Now, Jens Stoltenberg, who has been extended, had his five-year term extended twice. He was Prime Minister of Norway, a country that has as long a border with Russia as Estonia. Now, this sums up the complete and utter lack of awareness among West Europeans that you don't even know the basic facts. First of all, the fact that, oh, you can't because you're from, you border Russia. And B, not knowing that the current Secretary General also comes from. So any, so basically what that means is that if you are from a border country that would actually maybe know something, that disqualifies you from being Secretary, be, having a position on these issues. And you really, it's much better to someone who doesn't know anything mm. to be, the person to be a person who then makes who runs NATO. I mean, this is this is the absurd situation we're in, right? And I mean, Estonia has given given its its size and its GDP. Um, by We've given one percent of our whole GDP. One percent of the whole GDP to Ukraine, and you know there is a moral imperative, but there's also a utilitarian one, which I think your your chief of staff put it well when he said. Every javelin that we give to the Ukrainians that takes out a Russian tank is one less Russian tank that can invade Estonia someday. So why wouldn't we be doing this, right? Um, so Dan, I mean, I, I, let's let's turn to then as a final note. 
because we're both Americans here. Uh, I mean, Tomas is, is very much sound like one. Too. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm very concerned about where this country is headed. Uh, well, where it is now, but also where it may be headed in terms of, you know, if we see another Trump administration, uh, he has said that he wants to pull out of NATO. Um, God knows what kind of transactional or even worse sort of deal he would want to strike with Putin as a result of this. Um, you know, it, it seems like Republicans have lost their Reaganite first principles and have devolved into this sort of neo-isolationist, if not nativist point of view about, well, we don't care about Ukraine. I mean, uh, Matt Gates had a line which was quoted a few months ago in the New York Times. I don't care which fat guys in tracksuits are running the show in Kiev was his basic assessment of the situation. And yet, I mean, one of the things that that strikes me as kind of bizarre and paradoxical is, you know, the MAGA movement claims to want a, a succession of things. One, uh, revitalizing America's military might. Two, getting those lazy welfare queen Europeans to do more of the heavy lifting themselves in terms of the international security. Um, and three, create more jobs here at home. And yet our policy to help Ukraine manages to accomplish all three things at once, right? The security assistance, the money we spend on Ukraine, we actually spend here at home in our own military industrial complex, opening new factories, hiring more American workers to produce shells and, uh, you know, Gimlers and HIMARS and all the rest of it. And this war has forced, it's not, we're not quite there yet with all countries meeting, what is it, the 2% uh, GDP standard for defense spending in NATO, but a lot of them are getting there. They're certainly taking their, their own security and defense more seriously. What do you think the argument needs to be made? I mean, we talked about educating Americans about the state of the world outside of their own borders. What do you think the argument needs to be made for this sort of intransigent constituency that thinks Ukraine can, can survive or it can be completely colonized by Russia? It makes no difference to me here in you know, Boise, Idaho or whatever. Yeah. So I'm going to give you a fairly long answer here. Um, first of all, American politics can be quite the riddle wrapped inside an enigma. I've tried to explain it to to, to foreign colleagues uh, over the years. It's tricky and challenging. I think it's still a small minority, very small minority in the Republican Party that doesn't support giving assistance to Ukraine. It's just that the 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 margin in, in, in the House is so thin that Speaker Johnson doesn't have a whole lot of options and he's pushing for uh, a lot on the border. And and look, at the end of the day, I wish they would work it out because right now we're not getting what we need to Ukraine or to Israel. But let me just say this in the big picture. Uh, during World War One, my grandfather served in the Navy. His brother, my great uncle, served in the U.S. Army. My I never met my great uncle. He died as a result of being exposed to poison gas on the front. Uh, but my grandfather, just like so many of my other relatives who fought in World War II and, and, and in Korea, they had zero interest in sharing any of their brutal wartime experiences with anybody. They wanted to live out their days cultivating their own garden, so to speak. Right. Um, and it's that interwar period, you know, after the war to end all wars, when Americans wanted to be left alone, that I think we're seeing again now. It, this is this situation we face in the United States where Americans have seen how we spilled a lot of our own blood and treasure in those so-called forever wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. We don't want to become in, in, entangled in world affairs. And we don't see the distinction between supporting Ukraine in their fight and their war, which is our fight as well, mm -hmm. against Russian barbaric, unprovoked aggression. They don't distinguish between that and 100,000 U.S. troops in Iraq or Afghanistan. That's, to me, the real challenge. The other part for the United States, we're protected by two great oceans. We've got a really powerful, dedicated military intelligence community, law enforcement. They keep us safe from foreign threats. The problem is, just like the 20s and 30s, we got a lot of storm clouds on the horizon. We've got an axis of tyranny, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. They want to divide the world into spheres of influence that they control. And the only way out of that is for us to work with our allies. But first, we've got to be intellectually honest and see the world as it is, not how we wished it were. Mm. We ignore these threats at our own peril. You could think you could just pull up the drawbridge and not have to worry about it. I'm sorry, those threats are there. Um, we just need to be realistic about what we can do about them. We need to work with our NATO partners and enable our global allies 
Um, and that means banding together to make it clear that would-be aggressors like China would pay too high a price if they attacked Taiwan. Um, but look, we're in the crosshairs, we collectively. Yeah. For the purpose of this conversation, we and Estonia, just as much in the crosshairs of, of, uh, of those dictatorships, because nothing scares Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and their cronies more than liberty and freedom enshrined in our Constitution and, and Bill of Rights. And so either we band together with our partners and defend free trade and internationally recognized borders and lead as America has, or uh, those countries will lose to powerful dictators who seek to do us all harm. And I, I bring it back to what Sir Winston Churchill said um, about, you know, essentially I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, everyone hopes if you feed the crocodile enough, the crocodile will eat you last. And everybody hopes the storm will pass before it comes for their time to be eaten or devoured by the crocodile. Well, we as a country need to recognize that. And I think we're being willfully, not so blissfully ignorant of those threats. And that's up to the Biden administration. President Biden needs to get out on the bully pulpit and explain to the American people yeah. what the lay of the land looks like, like Presidents Reagan and Clinton did extremely well. They're both great communicators in, in different ways. Um, it starts with that. Win the argument. If you don't like the fact that Republic, some Republicans don't support your foreign policy, win the American people's trust and confidence with your own leadership. That's I say that as an American citizen without any um, predisposed political or ideological bias. I can tell you, uh, I I tried my best to, to to speak with intellectual honesty at CIA. I probably annoyed as many Democrats and Republicans mm. for telling them what they needed to know when it wasn't always what they wanted to hear. But those are my that's what I believe as an as, a, as an American citizen and one who is focused, you know, for decades on those threats. Uh, from overseas, detecting them, and then understanding that we have a finite amount of time to preempt those threats before harm is caused on our own shores. Yeah. Sorry for the long-winded answer. Oh, no, that's was, what I got. It was it was Churchillian oratory at its finest. So well done, um, Tomas. Uh, you're a New Jerseyite um, resident, former. Uh, you have as much right to weigh in on the American political scene as as any any of us do. What do you think needs to be done to better communicate this sort of urgent plea for helping Ukraine and also just recognizing the long term Russian threat? Well, I think that the uh, that what Dan said was absolutely right. I mean, there's a great acronym, the Crinks, uh, China, Russia, Iran and North Korea. And the Crinks are all counting on the failure of the West. Uh, they don't. I mean, the reason they don't like democracy is because democracy threatens the the oligarchs that run those the dict oligarchic dictatorships that run those countries. Uh, they all know that if there if there were democracy, they'd be out in a minute because mm. people can't stand those governments or regimes, I should say. And so. Uh, but I wish the Americans would understand that this is not just like, well, it's Russia or it's, it's China. It is a fundamental uh, ideological standoff between literally, I mean, really the countries that support democracy and the ones that don't. And the ones that don't use methods that we, because we're democracies, don't use. I mean, rule of law. You don't go around killing your... Uh, uh, your opponents the way that those countries do. They're killing their, I mean, they're killing people around the world and, and spying on their own people around the world. I mean, we can't do that. We in the West, it's not just the United States. It's basically the, the, it's the, it's Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and Taiwan, especially on the east, going east or going west, uh, depending on where you look. It's the countries of Europe. It's their emerging democracy. Ukraine is just the, the is the frontline state where this is being played out right now. Hmm. It's no accident South Korea and the Japanese are supporting with, with, uh, military hardware, the Ukraine, those countries, the countries of the of the liberal democratic, what are the, well, the West, though it includes the East, those countries realize uh, how much they are in the crosshairs 
it's being fought out in Ukraine. That's the that's this is the Spain. This is the Spain of our era. Mm. And the Nazis tested everything out that they were to do later on, Stuka dive bombers, tanks. They tested it out 1936 to 1939 in Spain. And they won in Spain, or the bad guys won in Spain. And then they took everything they learned and applied it to France and to Poland and the UK. Mm. Uh, this is a testing ground. And if we lose Ukraine, if we let them win, there's no reason whatsoever, none. They will be emboldened, saying, look, we did it there. Now we'll go on and do the next one right. and the next one. Uh, so please take this stuff seriously. I would be my message to America. Okay, well, let's uh, let's leave it there. We, we this this was a story about a very specific um, spy case in Estonia, but it, it spiraled out into a kind of grand narrative of uh, either the decline and fall of the West or the uh, <laughs> the, the perspective revitalization of that. You know, I always say, like the, the farther east you travel in Europe, the more west you wind up, with some very obvious exceptions. So you know, again. Nordic countries, the Baltic states, Eastern European countries that have lived under the yoke of totalitarianism and have sort of established liberal democracy. And it may have been, there's been some backsliding, but now they come back. You know, they they understand the stakes a little more exigently, I think, than, than we do here. And even though the United States has fought many wars in the last 20 years, they haven't been wars on our own homeland or in our own backyard. So it's it doesn't have the same sense of that's you know, since 1812. Yeah. But I think Pearl But it was it is pars pro, pro toto or a synecdoche uh to talk about the Morozov case and all of the kind of stuff that's going on ar around that, including Western naivete, useful idiots, the threat proposed by Russia. It all it, it spun out because it is so typical of the threats that we face. So we began with a single isolated well not so isolated case but it is it is pars pro toto for the for what the threats that we face in in the in the democratic world today yeah well hey, so i'll just add one last thing mm -hmm. as someone who spent years in russia uh i found that estonians were the most clear-eyed about russian threats and when Estonians used to ask me, like, why do you speak Estonian? And still, I still speak. So why are you still speaking Estonian? You know, I say, which means like Estonia is close to my soul. It is for that reason, because we have I have this with to bring it back to Alexander Tots. We speak the same language. Mm. Right? And I am so deeply thankful that that he and his team has such a clear eyed assessment of the threat russia poses um which we only gain from actually having lived in the belly of the beast and i realized that that's where estonia lives every day i only lived there a few years in russia but they have to live with that every single day and that's why they're so clear-eyed about it the utter failure of the german strategy of making economic deals for gas and oil and thinking that would moderate vladimir putin's behavior that failed Hmm. The Estonian realistic assessment of Russia's threat won the day. I'm sorry, Germany, but Estonia got this one right. Let's just call yeah. it what it is, and then we can make effective policy based on that. Those are my like closing thoughts. So Estonia needs no Zeitenwende. They they can just say, welcome to the party, pal, to everyone else. There you go. Yeah. Little <laughs> diehard right. reference. I like that. There Good you go. job. Yeah, yes. It's a Christmas movie. Let's just be very hey, It is. Right I'm, on. Um, well, we're going to leave it at there because we've we've now exceeded an hour. But um, I, I, as I knew it would be, it was a great discussion, and uh, I, I agree that we we started small but wound up big, and it's all very much interconnected. Um, so thank you both for for joining me. Thank um, you. And it was uh, fun. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have you both back. Uh, of course, Tomas has been on the program before, but Dan, I think this is your first time. So, uh, but not the last. I I, I can assure you. Um, You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, uh, editor of the Insider English and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and my guest this week. 
uh, were uh, Tomas Ilves, the former president of Estonia, and Dan Hoffman, former CIA officer. Uh, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>